know, as a husband of 29 years, I have learned to look for some things. I've learned, for example, if Julie tells me as we're about to be leaving to be somewhere on time that she doesn't know what she's going to wear, that I should just go to the living room, wait until she shows up because it will do no one any good anywhere on the planet for me to stand there and encourage her and remind her it's time to leave and, and we need to go and can I help you? That helps no one. I've learned, for example, if, if she's facing a deadline or if she's maybe working on a fearless mom project, crafting a message or has a deadline, then, then if she's a little bit distracted and distant, it's nothing personal, she's just kind of processing a lot. This is another one I've learned. I've learned that if Julie voices a frustration or she's got a challenge that she tells me about, do not try to fix it. How many of you husbands know that you've learned that? No, uh-uh. She's just processing out loud. That's what she does. She's a verbal computer. Brilliant. But she's just talking about it. She doesn't want you to fix it. And if she asks you, what do you think? Don't answer. It's a trap. But I've also, I've also learned this over 29 years of marriage, that there are times when I really need to lean in, that I need to truly engage and attentively listen, particularly when she utters the four most frightening words of the English language. We need to talk. Oh, that has put fear in husbands and boyfriends since time immemorial. But I've learned that Julie, when she says we need to talk, it's because she wants to bring something up. She wants to bring something out for the purposes of us getting better. It's never a one-sided diatribe. That's not how she rolls. It's only because she wants to make us better, because she believes that we can do better than we are currently doing in one situation or area? Well, let's be honest. It's because she believes I can do better <laughs> in one situation or area or another. And so I've learned after 29 years to not fear we need to talk so much, to, to actually choose to engage and, and lean in and I think that's a great place for where we are in this series, Clarity in the Chaos. I told you at the very beginning of this series that this is a series for all of us, no matter where you are personally, no matter where you are spiritually, but that there was a certain demographic that was particularly front and center in my heart and in my prayers and my preparation in getting ready for this series I'm talking about that demographic between, say, roughly 13 and 30 years old. How many of you are older than 30? Can I just see a show of hands? If you're online, online, raise your hand if you're older 30. That's great. That's cool. We're old. I mean, for a lot of us, by and large, barring a miracle of God, which is entirely possible, the die has been cast. But for those who are between the ages of 13 and 30, I'm begging you, with everything I have, lean in. I want you to know that today and, and 
dovetailing off of where Bill was last week and where we're going next week, this really is kind of the, it's kind of the tipping point. It's the, it's the fulcrum, really, for this series that we've been in. And so I want to say to you especially, we need to talk. Because there is so much going on in our world that you have the opportunity to speak into. You have the opportunity to be a leader in this world. But it is imperative that you understand the world in which we live. Throughout this series, we've kind of been using this, this what I just refer to as the chart, the chart of worldviews. We can pull this up real quick just by way of review. Remember we said that thoughts, feelings, and ideas, these things come from all over the place. Good, bad, ugly, indifferent, it doesn't matter. They come from everywhere. But we have to filter our thoughts, feelings, and ideas through truth. That is specifically the Word of God. What God has given us biblically, He has given, us to, given to us as an act of grace, as an act of love, but also as an act of truth. Because God created Everything. Remember, we said at the very beginning of this series, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created. Everything begins and ends with God. That's what the Bible means when it says he is the alpha and the omega. God determines what's real. God determines what is true. How many of you know that, that, that feelings come and go? Can I just see a show of hands? Have you ever had your feelings lie to you? Have you, ever, have, you ever, have you ever made a really important decision in life based on a feeling that you had in that moment and you turned out to be wrong? Some of you right now are thinking about people you used to date. <laughs> Man, you're like, I just, I know I can, I can get him there. If, if, if I could love him enough, and yes, he's a problem, and, and yes, he's, he's he, but if I could just, you don't date projects. We love everyone. But don't date a project. And somebody, help me preach, don't marry a project. Yeah. Anyway, don't tell Julie that I said that, but I really believe that. So these thoughts, feelings, and ideas, we filter through the sane of truth. And those thoughts, feelings, and ideas that make it through the sane of God's biblical truth become the bedrock of our beliefs, our, our our worldview, our belief system, if you will. And it's that belief system that then informs our decision. We can keep that chart up there. I'm still working on that. Our beliefs inform our decisions. The decisions. How many do we make a day? Over 35,000 decisions every day. Whew, that's impressive. 35,000 decisions every day that become the sum total of our lives. And this is where we find ourselves. Today, as we continue this series, Clarity in the Chaos, and we talk about worldview, I want to talk to you today about identity politics. Identity politics. But I'm not talking to you about the, the divisive, demographic-driven, polarizing politics that's so popular right now. I'm talking to you instead about allowing our faith in Christ, inviting God into the voting booth with us, that our identity in Christ informs our politics rather than our politics informing our faith. 
And I'm just going to say this. How many of you have seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma? Have you seen this thing on Netflix? This th everybody needs to watch this thing. It is one of the greatest horror movies of all time. The only thing missing is a hockey mask. It's unbelievable. Social media. Listen, social media, they're in business to make money. I'm not, that's, that's the world, man. That's what they do. I'm not mad at social media. Social media just amplifies what's already there in my heart. The thing is, they are reading every single click of our lives. So when you Google, for example, global warming, you're going to get a different response than I'm going to get. It's not just scientifically algorithmed out. They're algorithming, is that a verb? They're algorithming our views, our choices, our clicks, the articles we read, the things that we like. And so we have to be so careful because what's happening is all of us, to one degree or another, who engage on social media are putting ourselves in our own echo chamber. It's like whatever your personal political beliefs, let's say that you wake up in the morning and you turn on, turn on MSNBC. Well, that's going to be the message that you hear over and over and over and over again. Let's say that you wake up every morning and you turn on Fox News. That's going to be the message that you hear over and over and over again. And I'm just going to tell you this. Our democracy and our lives would be better today if Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN went away. They are all demonic. They are dividing us and splitting us up into these identity politic groups. And it is horrific what they're doing. Do not buy the lie of Fox News or CNN. The news business is a business first. They exist to separate us from our money. That's why they exist. It's like Disney. <laughs> so, again, our identity politics is about Christ. Then our politics... It's not politics and then Jesus. And I'm going to say this as well. As we go to the polls, and by the way, we go to the polls, okay? Whether you, whether you mail it in or you go and you vote, stand in line for three hours, whatever it is, put out a pup tent and camp, I don't care. We go to the polls. I have to tell you this, and, and I've prayed about this, but I feel led to say, Whichever way you vote at the top of the ticket this year, as a follower of Jesus, I believe with everything I have, we should all, all be at least slightly conflicted. If you're excited to vote for either one of these candidates or parties, you're not paying attention. You are not reading politics through the grid of scripture. Having said that, we have a massive opportunity in front of us. We have a massive opportunity as the people of faith, the family of Christ, to be a voice in our nation. I want to read a passage of scripture to you that I'm not going to put on the screen. In Jeremiah 29, God is speaking to his nation, Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, 
explaining to Israel what is about to happen because they are about to experience the discipline of a loving, perfect father. They're about to be exiled to Babylon. But look at what God says to them about their exile. Jeremiah 29, just listen to this. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work. Say work. Work. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. As followers of Christ, you and I live in exile. I didn't just make that up. That's biblical. Our, our permanent residence is heaven. Our address is earth, which is why Jesus told us when you pray, say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so our job as followers of Christ is to bring to bear in the public square, in the public debate, everything that will bless our city, everything that will bless our community, everything that will bless our nation, and to work hard against those things which will not. And there will be people who disagree. There will be people who hold opposing views. We love everyone. We love everyone. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to be in Washington, D.C. for the National Prayer Breakfast. And I will never forget this moment, this this event. It, It was really incredible. And at this National Prayer Breakfast, it was a massive hotel ballroom in Washington, D.C., packed body to body. I mean, just like sardines. And because Julie couldn't go with me, I had Emily come up from South Carolina where she was in college, our daughter. She came to Washington and met me there, and she went to the breakfast with me. And I will never forget, you know, it was one of those political events where every time somebody says, today's Tuesday, somebody said, ha, ha, standing ovation, they clap. I mean, at every, at the end of every sentence. And, and because it was the prayer breakfast, everybody was kind of on their best behavior and, and you know, clapping for each other. It was, it was really kind of pretty cool. Well, I noticed through the breakfast that every time it was time to stand up, Emily would scoot her chair back and stand up, but the woman sitting behind her, her chair kept bumping into Emily's. And so Emily kept kind of come like this over the table. And after the second time that it happened, I thought, I'm going to just see who this woman is. And I kind of, we stood up to clap at the next opportunity about 30 seconds later. And I looked around and Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. I said, hey, Nan, let me tell you. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. But here's what was fascinating at the National Day of Prayer. I noticed where Nancy Pelosi was sitting at her table facing that way, on the other side of the table facing this way was Texas' own Ted Cruz, sitting at the same table, having prayer, having breakfast. And I have to tell you what I thought. Now, for those of you who don't know, Nancy Pelosi, some would call liberal. (laughs) Ted Cruz, some would call 
conservative. And in that moment, I thought to myself, thank God that I live in the United States of America. Thank you, God, that we live in a place where people with such different viewpoints work and strive and, and fight, hopefully and prayerfully, to move our nation forward. Now, I don't agree with everything that Nancy Pelosi believes. I don't agree with everything that Ted Cruz believes. One of them, I agree with a lot more than the other one, and I'll let you try to figure that out. But the fact is, for all of the challenges that we face, for whatever reason, God has chosen to allow us the privilege and the honor of living in a nation where we all have a voice. We all get to speak into the governance of our nation. And because we all have a voice and because we can all speak, we need to talk. We, we need to talk. There's a passage of scripture that's going to frame this week and next week for us. It's found in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church at Colossae, Colossae, and he's writing to them, explaining to them what he hopes and prays for this fledgling congregation, these new found followers in Christ. He's actually writing, addressing the culture of the town in which they live, addressing the culture of the world in which they live. This is what he says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. It's always fascinating to me when I hear somebody say that the Bible is irrelevant. <laughs> Does anybody in, in the year 2020, have you heard any fine-sounding arguments that are deceptive this year, for example? I don't know, anybody? They're everywhere. And, and the thing about fine-sounding arguments is, if you don't think it through to the next level, you might be deceived by them. You might be deceived by a politician's claim. You might be deceived by a news network's perspective. Paul said, I want you to have all of the fullness of the riches of knowledge and wisdom that is found in Christ. Jesus, Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. So anything that sets itself up against Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. Anything against Christ is deceptive. It's, it's ignorant. It's not dealing with reality. So 
we have to make sure that we are thinking everything through. This is why we say all the time, as a follower of Christ, make sure that you don't check your brain at the door. You, you, you need to do the homework spiritually. You need to do the homework politically. Make sure that you are filtering everything through Scripture. That's why Bible study is so, so important. It's not only the social aspect that you get with other believers, but it's also what you learn about truth, about how God says this world operates. The Apostle Paul, author of Colossians, is actually a great example to follow in this conversation of identity politics. And not just because of what Paul wrote, but also because of the example that he set. Today, in the time that we've got left, I want, to, I want us to really focus on why we have to talk, but also how we have to talk. Because I think a lot of times we can get sucked into the vortex of all the negativity and all of the backbiting and name-calling and all that nonsense that the world participates in. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's in the city of Athens in Greece. And at the time, Athens was a lot like Austin. It, it was a city of trade and commerce. It was a city of, of knowledge and learning. It, it was a city of technology for that day and age. And Paul is in Athens waiting on Silas and Timothy to catch up with him, to join him. And while he's there, he's just kind of a tourist. He's just kind of walking around, catching the sights and looking at how people are living and what's going on. But Paul never took off his faith goggles. Everything Paul looked at, everything he looked at was through the lens of faith and truth. And when he looked at the city of Athens, I want you to look at how he saw it. I want you to look at how he addressed it. Acts chapter 17 Verses 16 through 17 and then verse 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He was deeply troubled. He went to the synagogue, the, the place of Jewish worship. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Verse 21. I love this. See if this doesn't sound like Austin. Check this out. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Keep Athens weird. Isn't that amazing? They, they love to just sit around and, you know, they're Athens turtlenecks, smoking cloves, drinking espresso, just talking about ideas. Yes, you believe this? Oh, fascinating, interesting, yes. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts and ideas. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they just love to sit around and talk about ideas. Nobody landed anywhere. But Paul engaged in the public square. He went into the belly of the beast philosophically, 
And he had done enough homework that he could have the conversation with people who didn't agree with him or believe the same thing he believed. Isn't that a beautiful thing? The verse goes on. So Paul, standing before the council in Athens, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens. Now, Paul was not being sexist. The whole world was sexist at this point. There weren't any women in this debate or in this conversation. So just don't send me the email. It was the world. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing, this is the one I'm telling you about. Now, I, I, just, I just want to mention four things, not eight, four things that I think are so critical. Why do we need to talk? Well, we need to talk because we are called and commissioned by the Son of the living God to be salt and light in a dark and dying world. We must speak up. We must talk and use our voice. So, so understand that right from the jump. Also, why do we need to do this? Well, it's our calling but also because history, because history. If you look back, let's just say over the last 150 years, you look back at those places in the world that have experienced the most carnage, the most damage. If you trace the arc of the story back far enough, you will find a quiet church. You will find a church that was either quiet and cowering in the corner or, even worse, was conspiring and collaborating with the culprits of that culture. Look at Russia. We think of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. But if you go back before that into the 1880s, 1890s, the Russian Orthodox Church was complicit in the complete corruption of Russian culture under the czars. And because they were quiet and complicit, they were then impotent to even address or speak to the evils of Marxism, socialism, and communism. They could not do it. Germany, 1933. Adolf Hitler is elected, elected, but because the Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church in Germany were quiet and turned a blind eye to the nationalism and populism of Hitler, over 100 million people died. Russian socialism, communism, just in the last 150 years, if the church had been the church, and stood up and spoken into the culture truth and grace, a large percentage of more than 120 million people who were murdered would not have been murdered. You see, ultimately, culture is a spiritual issue. As the church goes, so goes the culture. 
we need to talk. We must speak out. We must speak up. But Paul shows us how to do it. Number one, be compassionate. Be compassionate. When you speak up, be compassionate. What did it say when he was in Athens? He was deeply troubled by all the idols that he saw. Deeply troubled. When you see the evil in Portland, Seattle, when you see the anarchy and the disorder in Austin, be compassionate. Just be compassionate. These, these are broken people who need the truth and the grace of Jesus. We, we don't condemn them. Jesus, Jesus doesn't condemn. Who, who are we to condemn? We're compassionate. We, we look in at the, at the anarchy that they're allowing in Portland and Seattle. We, we look at we look at the anarchy on our own streets with, with the tent cities popping up under every overpass. It's completely out of control. And listen, this church has done as much or more to help the homeless population of Austin as anyone in Austin, Texas over the last 15 years. Don't even at me, bro. But our elected officials must be held accountable at the ballot box. This is insanity. And we're going to continue to serve and to help the least, the last, and the lost of our community and our city. We're not going anywhere, but we're also going to call it out when it's wrong. We're not going to affirm brokenness, but we're going to be compassionate. We're going to call it out, and we're going to talk. We're going to speak up, but we're going to be compassionate. Paul was deeply troubled. Number two, be competent. Be competent. When, when you speak up, make sure that you've done your homework. Don't, don't just say, well, I heard Rush Limbaugh say, listen, Rush, God bless him. We pray for his healing. But if that's your only source, you may want to round it out a little bit better. Well, Jake Tapper, well, I'm just going to suggest to you that it's possible Neither Rush Limbaugh nor Jake Tapper have a completely Christ-centered worldview. Just a thought. So we have to be competent. We have to be able to reason with Jews and Gentiles alike in the public square. You've got to be willing and able to have a conversation. Number four, I'm sorry, number three, I got ahead of myself. Be courageous. Be courageous. Yes, you're compassionate. You best be competent. But man, be courageous. Paul, Paul went into the arena. He went into the public square. He was willing to stand up and say, no, I, I disagree with that. Or I believe this. As followers of Christ, we must be able to do that. So be courageous. If you, if you have an opinion and it's well-informed and you're speaking compassionately, be courageous with it. You don't have anything to hide. Don't, don't ever let anybody try to, try to intimidate you and say, well, you're a Christian. You can't have a conversation. No, nope. I, I, I got as much right to the public square as any atheist on the planet, Jack. So lovingly sit down. I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you what I think. I'm going to be courageous. Number four, 
be courteous. Be courteous. Look at what Paul said. Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in every way. At, at that point, the, the men in the public square were like, well, that's true. We, we're, we're pretty awesome. But do you notice how he spoke to them with respect? He wasn't condescending. He wasn't talking down to them. He said, I, I noticed that you have this one altar over here, this, this altar to the unknown God. Well, I'm going to tell you who he is. I'm going to tell you who he is. So, so be compassionate. Be, be competent. But, but number five, number five, be clear. Be clear in what you believe. Be clear in, in what it is that is the bedrock of your beliefs. And as a follower of Christ, it's him. Remember, you know what I love about the way God operates? Can I just show you something that's happened over the last few months in our church? We all go, you know, shutdown starts in March, and everybody's like, oh, the world's ending. What are we going to do? And that was our staff. But, you know, we, we all kind of freaked out a little bit in March, right? Then we decided and prayed and, and felt God leading us. Let, let's go back to the basics. Let, let's, let's remember true north. Remember Hebrews? We, we fix our eyes on Jesus. And then, and then God says, I, I, want you to, I want you to really do a deep dive on grace. I, I want you to really and truly just roll around in grace and truth. I, I kind of feel like he was, he was preparing us all along for what he had already prepared for us. That, that because we fixed our eyes on Christ, because we have owned the truth of who he is, and, and because we've, we've really gotten serious about grace and we've decided as a church, we've decided as people, man, we, we want to be people of grace. That now we can have this conversation. Now we, we can even talk about politics with truth and with grace. But we remember that politics is not our God. Our nation, the state, is not our God. Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so I, I, I'm, I'm going to step into some big footprints right here. I'm, I'm going to follow in the footprints of the Apostle Paul. The God that you're looking for, the God that you may not have known the name of, but you've spent your life building around, the one you're looking for is Jesus. Jesus, that's who you're looking for. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the reality is that no one comes to the Father but through him. It is by his name 
that we are forgiven, that we are saved from our sin. It is Jesus. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. But as you bow your head, I want you to lean in. Don't check out. Even if you're online, stay, stay in it for just a second more. Because if you have never chosen to follow Christ, it's our prayer as a church that this morning, this conversation about politics has pointed you to the person of Jesus. Jesus who left his rightful place in heaven and came to earth. He came to earth to be with us, to be one of us. Maintaining all of his deity, he assumed humanity. And he went to the cross, the Bible says. Historians tell us that Jesus of Nazareth died on a Roman cross. But the Bible says that he went there in your place, in my place, that he became our sin. And when he took on my sin and yours, he paid the inevitable consequence of that sin. He died. Just like left to our own devices, we are dead in our own sin. But then he did what we couldn't have done for ourselves and he rose from the dead. He got up on the third day with the promise and the offer of a new life. A new life that is eternal. A new life that begins here and now for anyone who would follow him. If you would like to begin that journey, then we want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Pray. Just right where you are, you just, from your heart to God's, say something like this. Just silently pray and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And I confess my sin to you, holding nothing back, in order to receive your grace, your amazing grace and forgiveness as a gift, a gift that I can't earn, that I don't deserve. But in this moment, Jesus, I'll take it. And Jesus, in response to your gift, I give you my life. I will follow you. And I pray this prayer in your name. Just for a moment, I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, and just let you know that as a church, we have the privilege, we have the responsibility to help with what's next, and we want to. 
You know, as Whitney said earlier, really everything that we're about is, is about connection. It's connection to Christ. It's connection to each other. And so we want to help. And so I want to ask you, if you would, just to begin that process as our heads are bowed. If that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high for a moment as a spiritual statement of the response that you just made to Jesus' grace initiative. And then as a church, our family tradition is that you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.